0: Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you part one of two of the cases of Essie Jackson, Tanya Harry, Angela Anderson, Latanji Watts, and LaWanna Triplett in Portland, Oregon. Let's get right to it. Portland, Oregon is known for being a melting pot of culture and the arts. The city is the largest in the state and full of unique places to visit, from gardens and falls to museums and theaters. It seems there's something for just about everyone, whether you're looking for an outdoor activity or want to take a stroll through the art district. You can find it in Portland. According to Statista, nearly 2.5 million people call the progressive city home. However, Portland faces its problems in the present day, and for the past several years, the city has been shrinking. According to the LA Times, homelessness, crime, high taxes, and the aftermath of the pandemic are the main issues the city is facing. And as it turns out, this isn't the first time the city has faced a high crime rate. At the turn of the 20th century, Portland had a reputation as one of the most dangerous port cities in the world one plagued with organized crime and racketeering. According to the FBI, violent crime continued to be a concern well into the 1980s. At the same time, according to the BBC, there was also a peak in active serial killers. Data compiled by various researchers suggest a rise in serial killings starting in the late 1960s and peaking in the 80s when there were at least 200 such murderers operating in the United States alone. We all know the names like Jeffrey Dahmer, the Golden State Killer, and Gary Ridgway, but for at least a decade from 1983 to 1993, there was a serial killer loose on the streets of Portland, targeting African American women who were victims of sex trafficking. Their murders were rarely reported on. And even today, their names are mostly unknown. Even as I researched this case, I wasn't able to find much in the way of a life history on who these women were before they were preyed upon both in life and death. But their stories need to be told. Because regardless of their circumstances, they were mothers, daughters, sisters, and friends. And beyond that, they were human beings who deserved to live their lives and be given an opportunity to change their circumstances. But that was brutally taken away from them. Did you know that traditional bed sheets can harbor more bacteria than a toilet seat? It can lead to acne, allergies, and stuffy noses. And let's be honest, it's just gross. Miracle Made offers a whole line of self-cleaning, eco-friendly bedding such as sheets, pillowcases, and comforters that prevent 99% of bacteria and require three times less laundry. Self-cleaning sheets? Uh, yes please, cause your girl hates laundry but also dirty sheets. Which is why I'm so glad I found Miracle Made. These sheets are infused with silver that prevents up to 99.7% of bacterial growth leaving them cleaner and fresh three times longer than other sheets. They're designed for your skin. Stop sleeping on bacteria which can clog your pores, causing breakouts and acne. Sleep clean with Miracle. And the best part is, you don't have to give up comfort or quality. Miracle sheets are luxuriously comfortable, without the high price tag of other luxury brands, and feel as nice, if not nicer, than bed sheets used by some five-star hotels. Go to TryMiracle.com slash to try Miracle made sheets today. And whether you're buying them for yourself or as a gift for a loved one, if you order today, you can save over 40%. And if you use our promo least at checkout, you'll get three free towels and save an extra 20%. Miracle is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with MiracleMade. Go to trymiracle.com slash lease and use the code lease to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40%. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash lease to treat yourself. Thank you, MiracleMade, for sponsoring this episode. According to police records, on March 23, 1983, a citizen was walking along the western edge of Overlook Park in North Portland. It was approximately 5 p.m. As he walked along, he looked over the steep embankment between North Greeley Avenue and the park, where he discovered what appeared to be a woman's body. The man immediately notified police. When police arrived, they found that the victim was an African American female and it was clear she had been deceased for some time. KOIN reported that the victim's shirt was pulled up to expose her breasts, and her pants were unfastened. This led police on scene to believe that just prior to her death, the young woman had been sexually assaulted. An autopsy later confirmed what police suspected. She had in fact been assaulted. The autopsy also revealed that the young woman had been strangled. The victim was later identified as 23-year-old Essie Jackson. Essie was the mother of a toddler-aged boy. She had last been seen alive on February 12th at approximately 10.30 p.m. near the intersection of Northeast Union, which has since been renamed to Martin Luther King Jr. Boulevard and Failing Street. This was an area that was known for a high volume of human trafficking. And according to reports, Essie was being trafficked by a pimp. Now it appears Essie didn't exactly see it that way and viewed the man as her boyfriend, or at least that's what she told her friends and family. But around here we call a spade a spade, and we also never miss an opportunity to spread awareness about human trafficking. I'm sure I don't have to tell you by now that putting an end to human trafficking is something I'm passionate about. But what you might not know is that I've worked as an advocate for victims of sex trafficking and been involved in the rescue of women and girls from the street over the past few years in a high-crime area. In those years, the one thing I've learned is that human trafficking, especially sex trafficking, doesn't always look like trafficking. Oftentimes, the image that is portrayed is one of women and children being ripped off the streets. Think Liam Neeson in the movie Taken. And while that can and does happen, it's actually rare. More often than not, according to the Polaris Project, traffickers use psychological means to lure their victims in, such as tricking, defrauding, manipulating, or threatening victims into providing commercial sex or exploitive labor. This use of force, fraud, or coercion to compel another person into commercial sex acts is at its core the very definition of human trafficking. It goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Force, fraud, or coercion aren't necessary when a minor is involved, and in those cases, if a minor is engaged in any kind of commercial sex, it is legally considered trafficking regardless of the circumstances. There are many different ways a victim can be exploited, and often the victim knows their trafficker beforehand. Whether it's someone they met online, someone in the family, or someone they simply met out on the street who befriended them. It doesn't typically start out with the victim being forced to engage in sex acts. It's a lot more sinister and sneaky than that. It often starts with a lot of, you're so beautiful, let me take care of you. Or whatever you want, I've got you. Or maybe even an I love you so much and we can have this amazing future together or an offer of shelter or protection. The manipulation is real, and traffickers are masters of it. It can come in so many forms. But today I want to discuss just a couple things. Things that are often labeled, as they were in this case, labeled as prostitution, but are actually a form of human sex trafficking, and that is survival sex and exploitation of addiction. Survival sex is exactly what it sounds like, It involves exchanging sex to meet immediate needs. Those can be things like money, food, or shelter. The trafficker promises all of these things and many times delivers. However, victims are forced to pay them back by engaging in commercial sex. Legally, this can fall into a gray area, sometimes viewed as trafficking and a crime, and sometimes viewed as prostitution, which is also a crime. The only thing that changes is who is punished. And who exactly is labeled the criminal in these cases depends on the individual situation, but also on the jurisdiction. And in my humble opinion, the amount of training related to human trafficking in said jurisdiction. But that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. And a soapbox you don't want me to climb up on because I'll probably never get off. I'll just say it shouldn't be a crime to survive when you're out of options, but it most definitely should be a crime to exploit someone in a desperate situation. Anyhow, what is also very commonplace and goes hand-in-hand with survival sex is the exploitation of addiction. Traffickers target women and men too, who are already struggling with addiction, many times first offering their drug of choice for free sometimes slipping in more powerful and addictive drugs, or sometimes offering them drugs for the very first time, getting them hooked and then providing the drug in exchange for sex. The vast majority of the women I got to know on the street who were engaged in commercial sex fell into one or both of these two categories. Not a single one of them was out there because they wanted to be, and 100% of them wanted more for themselves. But breaking cycles and addictions isn't an easy task. And when you throw in extreme poverty and a lack of resources, it can seem damn near impossible. And let's get real. There aren't many people willing to help them out of their situations. They aren't seen as victims or in many cases, even as humans, but rather some sort of social pariah that should be shunned at all costs. But in my experience, beneath a sometimes tough but necessary exterior, these women have the most beautiful souls. Despite shitty circumstances and constant re-victimization along with the judgment of society, they remain kind and generous. They look out for each other and try like hell to prevent other young women and teens from falling into the trap. I have personally witnessed their actions save lives. Unfortunately, I won't be able to get into the specifics for safety reasons, but there are women out there on the street today, women that a large portion of society would refer to as prostitutes or drug addicts, that are heroes in my book, heroes that have literally saved lives at the risk of their own. These kind of situations are the ones the victims in today's story like Essie Jackson found themselves in. And while researching this case, it was heartbreaking to read the way these women were talked about, often not even referred to by name, but instead as, quote, street type women and prostitutes. At times, the women were blamed for their own murders. In one article, which we're going to talk about, the murders of these women was referred to as, quote, the byproduct of prostitution. This was the 80s and early 90s, and to some degree, things have gotten better. But the judgment of those type of street women still exists today. But before we're so quick to judge, and believe me, I'll be completely transparent here. I used to be that guy, the one who wouldn't have given these women the time of day or a second thought, you know, back in the day when I was young and stupid. But life and the good Lord have a way of humbling you and opening your eyes to see things a different way. I was a little hesitant to tell you this story today, since I don't have close to a full background on who these women were. I wish I did. And I almost put this story on the shelf for a later date. But here we are. Because what happened to these women matters. The fact that their lives have been reduced to three lines on a newspaper calling them prostitutes and blaming them for the actions of a monster just ain't something I can live with. They were so much more than that. They mattered and they still do. I'm here today to tell the story because I know that I have the best listeners in the world and you'll care about this case just as much as I do. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes life throws some crazy curveballs, and it's hard to find your path forward. I know for me, just when I think I've got it all figured out, wham, something comes right out of left field, and I feel stuck trying to decide what the next step forward is, whether it's my career, parenting, or anything else. It can be hard to take those next steps, but therapy helps you stay connected to what you really want while you navigate your life so you can move forward with confidence and excitement. Trusting yourself to make decisions that align with your values is like anything. The more you practice it, the easier it gets. Therapy empowers you to be the best version of yourself by learning positive coping skills, how to set healthy boundaries, and so much more. If you've been thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash lease today to get 10% off your first month. Once again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com After 23-year-old Essie Jackson's body had been discovered, police had few leads. All they knew was that she had last been seen in an area where she was known to work. Four months after Essie's murder, the body of another young woman was found. On July 9, 1983, 19-year-old Tanya Harry was found in West Delta Park. West Delta Park is roughly five miles north of Overlook Park where Essie had been found. According to KOIN, Tanya Harry was found, face down, partially submerged in a pond. Her body had lacerations, there were injuries to her face, and an apparent ligature mark around her neck. KATU reported that Tanya had last been seen on Union Avenue, just south of Killingsworth Street, the night before her body was discovered. The autopsy report revealed that her cause of death, however, was drowning. There was evidence that Tanya too had been sexually assaulted and her shirt was pulled up over her chest as Essie's had been, her pants also unfastened. Near the scene, police found paper towels with semen on them and near Tanya's body, a belt that had been broken into three pieces. Michael Washington, a close family friend of Tanya Harry's relatives, would speak on behalf of her family at a late court hearing about Tanya. He described her as a gentle soul who got mixed up with an abusive boyfriend after high school, who forced her into sex trafficking. Two months passed after Tanya's murder and there was another victim, this time a teenage girl. Angela Anderson was only 14 years old when she was found deceased on September 22, 1983. KATU reported that Angela was discovered in the upstairs bedroom Of an at the time vacant house located at 416 Northeast Going Street, about a mile from Overlook Park. The house was listed for sale at the time with a sign in the yard and a lockbox on the front door. A potential home buyer had made the horrific discovery when they went to check out the house. Angela's wrist had been superficially cut, and she had a cord tied around her neck. An autopsy determined she died of strangulation. Again, there were signs of a sexual assault, and Angela was found with her shirt pulled up and pants unbuttoned or unzipped. Police located a fingerprint from a crawl space down in the room where Angela's body had been found and also a discarded cigarette butt. Those items were of course collected as evidence. Detectives learned that at the time of her murder, Angela was living in a foster home and her friends believed that shortly before her death, she'd become a victim of sex trafficking. At a later court hearing, Dondra Lawson, Angela's sister, who was only 8 years old when Angela was murdered, remembered her sister as kind, recalling that when she was bitten by a poodle as a young child, it was Angela who kissed her wound and told her it would be all better. Dondra said she cherishes the scar from the dog bite because it reminds her of her big sister, Angela. She also recalled that Angela loved to draw and liked bright colors. In the span of six months, three African-American females had been found murdered, all within just a few miles of each other, all known to be victims of human trafficking, all having been murdered by some form of asphyxiation, all assaulted with their clothing found the same way. Though their families were devastated, life in North Portland just went on many not even realizing that three bodies had been found in a five-mile radius. The murders weren't heavily reported on, and at first, no connection seemed to be made, at least not by the Portland police. In May of 1984, the Democrat Herald reported that the murders in Portland were being reviewed by the Green River Task Force in Seattle. You see, at that time, the task force, which was assembled to try and identify the Green River killer, who by that point was suspected of murdering 24 women in the Seattle area, believed that the killings in Portland could have been committed by their guy. The killings had a few things in common. All of the women were young women working in the sex trade. Several of the Green River Killers victims were African American, and they too had been strangled. And Portland was only roughly two and a half hours south of Seattle, so the task force wanted to look into the murders. Of course, the Green River Killer would later be identified as piece of dog shit, Gary Ridgway, who would ultimately be convicted of over 40 murders and claimed to have killed 80 women. But in the end, it was determined that Ridgway wasn't connected to the Portland murders. But at least the police in Seattle were doing something, because it doesn't appear much was happening in Portland. On Wednesday, January 2nd, 1985, the Statesman Journal reported that not only did Portland police not believe there was any link to the Green River killings, but they doubted that the murders in their jurisdiction had anything at all to do with a serial killer. The article explained that Portland police didn't suspect a link in the Seattle cases, and of course that was correct, but it went a step or 17 further. The article read in part, and I quote, the Portland women were prostitutes or street type women, as detectives put it, and they were last seen in the area of Northwest Union Avenue or Highway 99 near downtown Portland in an area of prostitution. Portland detectives are not convinced that they have a serial killer or that any of their cases are related to Green River. No one believes we have a serial killer involved, My personal belief is that the deaths are a byproduct of prostitution, says Lt. Rob H. Eichel, the Portland Police Bureau's night commander, who has been in charge of evaluating the seven homicide cases. Well, there it is. The dumbest thing we're going to hear all day. Or at least one can hope. As far as the seven homicide cases, Portland police were evaluating four cases of women who had been strangled. Three of which we've covered, and one that seems to have been unrelated, and three other murders of young women who had been stabbed. Portland police seem sure that this wasn't the work of a serial killer, and in a roundabout way, actually the fault of the victims themselves. With every ounce of the benefit of the doubt, Maybe looking at all seven cases, investigators failed to see the striking similarities between the murders of Essie, Tanya, and Angela, because of the differences in the others. Hindsight is always twenty-twenty, and it may seem obvious when laying the cases out now, when you take out the other not-so-similar cases out of the equation. For whatever reason, I'll leave that one up to you. Police in Portland weren't connecting the dots. As all of this was taking place, things quieted down for the women working on Union Avenue. By this time, two years had passed since Angela's murder, and then three, and then four. But the killer was still out there, and would strike again. Four years after the murder of Angela Anderson, another young woman was found deceased in North Portland. On March 18, 1987, the body of 29 year old mother of three, Latanji Watts, was found in an empty lot at North Concord Avenue and North Going Court near the pedestrian overpass. KOIN reported that Latanji had last been seen by a police officer in the area of Union Avenue. The officer had last seen Latanji the night before her body had been found on March 17. The medical examiner determined that she had been manually strangled. Like the other women, it appeared Latanji was sexually assaulted and her shirt was pulled up, exposing her chest. After Latanji's murder, it stopped again. And again, several years passed. Six of them, to be exact, when on June 15, 1993, according to Portland police, a nine-year-old boy was walking by North Going and Concord, headed to the pedestrian overpass the same overpass where Latanji had been found. As the boy was about to step onto the overpass, he saw what appeared to be a bare human leg in the bushes against the concrete sound barrier. He got closer and saw a body there in the bushes. The boy ran home and told his father what he had seen, then his dad walked back with him and confirmed what his son had just told him. The father called 911. Police responded and found a young African-American woman who was later identified as 29-year-old LaWanna Triplett, deceased at the scene. LaWanna had been discarded in the same way as the others, only in addition to being strangled, according to court documents, she had also been brutalized, which included a bite mark to her breast. According to the state medical examiner's office, LaWanna had died due to abdominal injuries and strangulation. She had last been seen alive walking west on Northeast Alberta Street at approximately 1.30 a.m. the day her body was found. After Luana's murder, detectives received numerous tips, but one stood out. A phone call from a man who only identified himself as 21. This 21 character gave investigators, quote, pertinent information and told detectives he would call back. But surprise, surprise, he never did. Without a callback from 21, it seemed detectives didn't have much else to go on, and the cases of all the women went cold. Ten years passed and then 20. When it seemed as if there was no hope, Portland police made an announcement. An arrest had been made in the 1987 murder of 29-year-old Latanji Watts. On Friday, October 16, 2015, 55-year-old Homer Lee Jackson III was booked into the Multnomah County Detention Center on charges of aggravated murder. Who in the hell was Homer Lee Jackson III? And what had tipped police off after all this time? That we'll have to wait until next week because unfortunately, we are out of time. And there are so many twists and turns in this case. Join me next Thursday for the conclusion of this story. Same time, same place. In the meantime, check out polarisproject.org to learn more about the human trafficking crisis and how you can help. There are resources and free training as well as stories from survivors. If you suspect that someone is the victim of human trafficking, please make a report. Estimates suggest that internationally, only about 0.04% of survivors of human trafficking cases are identified, meaning that the vast majority of cases of human trafficking go undetected. You can report suspected human trafficking in the U.S. by contacting the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or by visiting humantraffickinghotline.org. I'll be sure to link all this information in the show notes. To learn more about this case, you can head over to my Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. You can finally get all your episodes ad free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Go to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.